ignition switches. On. RPM switches. Set. TD switches. Normal. Doors and hatches. Closed. Lay down. Strobe light. On. Restart check is complete. Clear left. Engineer. Start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast. Clear takeoff from Wing 31 left. All right, we're ready for departure here on the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF, brought to you by Skies Magazine and RCAF Today. I'm your host, Brian Morrison. With me today is my beautiful wife, Melissa Morrison. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be welcomed into the basement. So, Melissa, can you start by quickly telling us about yourself? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Truro, which is about an hour north of Halifax, Nova Scotia. I lived there with my parents and siblings until I went off to university. I did an undergrad in kinesiology at UNB, thinking it would be a more practical undergrad to get as I was thinking about going to med school at the time. I got sick in university while I was waiting to kind of figure out what to do next. I decided to do a master's in sport and exercise science. Partway through that, I abandoned the idea of medicine altogether and decided that I should pursue what had always kind of been my side hustle of sorts, business. So I did a master's in business administration while I worked full-time, ran a business, and coached a lot of cheer teams. And I think that's a perfect summary of who you are, that you were doing two masters at the same time, running a business, coaching, cheerleading. You were working as well. I like to be busy. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners about how we met? We met online before it was cool. I had set my, I'm going to age us here, plenty of fish account to a 500 kilometer radius so I could see all of the prospective suitors out there. My roommate at the time told me that I needed to get out and meet people. So she dared me to go on 12 dates in the month of December. We later referred to this as the 12 dates of Christmas. I'm not sure how persistent you thought I was, but I remember trying to convince you to meet me a bunch of times, actually. And one of them was even coffee at the airport before you flew home on Christmas holidays because I was just desperate to finish the challenge. Yeah, because I thought you were super into me and it turned out you were just doing a challenge. It's kind of shocking that we actually even met up at all with all the circumstances of what kind of happened the next few months. But we eventually met. We hit it off pretty well, pretty quickly. You were introduced to the whole cheer team and all of their parents pretty early. On our second date, yeah. Yeah, you met my family pretty quick after that. Yeah, it was probably our third date. Yeah. A funny thing that I always think about is how you tricked me about where you lived. So I would go back and forth between my parents' house in Truro, Nova Scotia and school in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So it would show me as being from a different location, depending on where I was at the time. And when I was talking to Brian, you were in on a course in Halifax. Yeah, that's right. I was on a course in Halifax for three months. So I had actually deleted plenty of fish, but decided to get it again since I was in the city for a few months. Yeah, you were in Halifax on a course and you thought I was living in Truro. That's right. But I was actually just visiting at my parents' house. And so you were like, sweet. She's only an hour away. Turns out the regular commute from the Annapolis Valley to Fredericton is how many hours? It's about five hours with stops. So I spent the next year and change almost every weekend driving five hours each way. 
Yeah. So we dated a little over a year. Yep. Before we got engaged. Yeah, we dated for about 14 months. Yeah. And then I remember thinking we got engaged in May and I was like, I really want to have like a summer wedding. And I was like, but to wait another year just feels like too long. And I think it was my mom, actually, who was like, well, why don't you just get married this summer? So we planned and had a wedding about 90 days from the time we got engaged until the time we got married. And I was gone for a month of that in Hawaii for RIMPAC, which is a big military exercise. Yeah. So I moved all my stuff from Fredericton into his house and got it all set up while he was away and planned the wedding. And yeah. Then we got married and attempted to start our life together. That's right. So when we did start dating, what was your initial thought when it came to dating someone in the RCAF? I think we mentioned this in one of the previous episodes that dating someone in the RCAF was not something that would win me over, especially the fact that you flew a plane. I didn't really care a lot about that. What I knew about People in the RCAF was really just what I knew from having some friends who were in the army who were involved in Afghanistan and would go away for periods of time and then come back. But to me, that kind of seemed like a perk because I'm an introvert. So having some time to myself every once in a while didn't seem like a horrible thing, especially, you know, living with someone who is a very social extrovert. I kind of thought it would balance balance it out, give me some more alone time. Although at that point, we didn't anticipate or see long deployments in your future. It was more just being away on exercises or being kind of on call or just different things like that. Yeah, most of our deployments at that point were like a couple of weeks for an exercise or an op here and there. So long deployments were pretty rare. Yeah, so a little bit of extra time to myself just seemed like an all right thing that was really about as far as i'd really thought about it you've had to make some professional sacrifices to follow me around especially when we were in nova scotia can you tell us a little more about that yeah being kind of a a newer grad with experiences but maybe not like direct experience made it pretty difficult for me to find a job in a small rural town in nova scotia at one point i had decided to take my master's degrees right off my resume. And at that point, I started to get a lot more job interviews. I think people just perhaps look at your resume thinking that, well, you're not going to stay here because maybe they know you're military or can tell by your resume. Or maybe they just think you're too overqualified for the job sometimes when you apply with more education or experience on your resume. As someone who hires people now, though, Like, I get it, but I think it never hurts to ask the candidate why they may want the job you're hiring for, or just to be transparent with what you can offer in terms of pay and benefits so that they can decide if they want to take the job or not. I do think the world is getting better in terms of remote work options, which makes it easier for military spouses to find work, but that isn't for everyone. I do think, though, we as military spouses, or maybe this is something we should do a better job of sharing just letting people know that there are certain careers that are easy to move with and others that are much harder if people are just thinking about their career, but maybe are in a relationship with someone who is in the RCAF. I think most military spouses just end up looking for flexibility when it comes to work because someone 
is at home and someone ends up being responsible for the majority of that when you are with someone who is away a lot. You often have to manage everything as a single parent, maybe without family or friends around. So trying to set yourself up for day-to-day success is something a lot of people look for. And unfortunately, this often means that some professional sacrifices may take place depending on your line of work. Did you find that frustrating at all when we were in Nova Scotia? I found it so frustrating because I wanted to find community and I wanted to gain experience. So I was at that point willing to take lower paying jobs or jobs that maybe weren't directly affiliated with my degrees. Like my two degrees are in fairly different areas. So there was lots of kind of room to grow and learn more. And yeah, it was very frustrating. There's some really small places that some of the bases are, and it can be a frustrating experience for spouses trying to find work sometimes, I think. Yeah, for sure. So most of our listeners will know that I'm not currently flying due to a mental health diagnosis, but when I was flying, how did you find balancing our jobs as well as having children? Truthfully, I think it's been harder for me since you've stopped flying to balance working and having kids. Just given everything that you're going through right now with your diagnosis, I've had to take on a bit more with just managing our life in general. Yeah, that's fair. We were kind of lucky that we didn't have to manage balancing jobs and kids for too long between parental leaves and getting posted. But I do remember that it was a bit of a juggling act, especially when it came to childcare. Our childcare was right by the base on your way to work. Normally you would do all the pickups and drop-offs. So when you were flying or away on an exercise or just getting called out, if you were on call, I would have to use banked or holiday hours just to manage drop-offs or pickups because I had a 40-ish minute commute in the opposite direction. So earlier you mentioned that once you moved to Greenwood with me that we had to try to start our life together. I actually deployed when we had been married for less than two months. What was that like for you? Looking back, I think I was in shock at first. We found out what, two weeks after we got married? Yeah, about that. When you tried to put in a leave pass for our honeymoon, where were we going? We were supposed to go to Jamaica with a couple friends of ours, Matt and Brianne. And when I went to ask about the leave pass, the flight commander told me, you might want to hold off on that. There's something coming down the pipe. And I thought because things were going on in Europe at the time that I was going to go over to Europe and I was all excited. And then it turned out to be flying over the Middle East, which again, I was excited for, but it wasn't what I was expecting at all as a submarine hunter. Yeah. And I think it being Roto Zero. For the listeners, Roto Zero is rotation zero. It means you're the first people to go over. I think that was the hardest part. The military didn't know answers to anyone's questions. I remember sitting in the mess on the base with everyone else who was about to go on Roto Zero. And in the briefing, like, They didn't know where you guys were going to stay. You guys thought you were staying in tents when you showed up there. They didn't know what communication was going to look like or how you were going to be able to contact home or how often or just any of that, which was hard not knowing, but also hard because we had never experienced that. You had never experienced that. There was no kind of knowledge to pass on to make it feel better. It was just a lot of unknown. I just moved there, so I didn't really know anyone at that point in time. 
I coped really bad and just assumed the worst to the whole situation. I just kind of thought about the fact that like, we just got married, this sex, you're probably not going to come back because it felt very much like you were going into like a full war zone at that point because there was so little known about it. And I just kind of figured I would be a widow and this would be really tough, but I would figure out a way to move on. And then I kind of thought if you came back alive, awesome, we could then finally start our life together. I think this was really brought home. I think it was in your first tour. I remember two men in matching outfits creeping around our base house, kind of like looking in windows. It looked like they were like seeing if anyone was home. I was upstairs watching them from the windows, trying to figure out what was going on. Everything I could think of was that they wanted to see if someone was home because any movie about military people, you may remember that if two people in uniform come to knock on your door, it's generally not good news. They're generally coming to tell you that someone has passed away. So this is what was going on in my head as I'm like creeping down because they're not going to call you to tell you this stuff. They're going to, they're going to come to your house. So at that point, all of the horrible thoughts I'd kind of had became very real in that moment until obviously I answered the door and they just wanted to ask questions or schedule something to fix on the house. I've heard that story a few times before, but I don't think I had ever connected it with the assumptions you'd made about me not coming back. I never realized how tough that must have been when that happened that day. Looking back, I think it impacted me more than I thought it did at the time. The time I was just probably more relieved than anything that they weren't coming to tell me that you died. Our time between deployments was really weird is how I would best describe it. (laughs) It's really hard to build a foundation or grow your relationship when the other person isn't there. And for us, we were pretty newly married. This was our first time living together or even being in the same province for any length of time. Being deployed isn't like your long distance dating, which is kind of what I thought it would be like. And I was like, whatever, we've been doing this our whole relationship. No big deal. Because you can't be real and you can't talk for hours or just like FaceTime while you're doing whatever. I found it really shallow in terms of our conversations. It definitely felt like we were protecting each other. I didn't want to worry you so that you could stay focused and do your job and come home alive. And I think you didn't want to scare me with kind of the things that were really going on. Yeah, for sure. There's lots you probably weren't allowed to tell me. So that also makes sense why it felt that way. Yep. I just remember, especially your first deployment, that time period was really lonely for me. I wasn't working full time at that point, had just moved there. I remember the running joke on your first tour was that you were going to come home to me holding a puppy. Well, Melissa was sending me photos of puppies almost every day for dogs that she wanted. And we did get a dog in between deployments. Yeah, so it happened. But I didn't surprise you with the dog. No. The first time you left, I didn't have a support network. So that made it really hard. It was supposed to be our first Christmas together. Didn't happen because you were gone and we didn't know you were going to be gone that Christmas. We thought you'd be home before that. I was lucky though that I found another newly married spouse to hang out with during that time. That kind of helped a little bit. And I did have some extended family, and my parents weren't that far away from where we were living at the time. So that that helped a bit. 
end of the second tour, things got a little bit better. The Aurora community set up sponsor families and stuff, which was nice. And you'd meet the rest of the crew you were going with before you went. And you just had someone who would reach out every once in a while to make sure things were doing okay. I think that's a piece that a lot of us could do better at, just helping to support one another. We also had neighbors who would come snowblow our driveway, which was a godsend because that was the winter where every Wednesday it would snow 12 to 18 inches every single week. That was an insane winter for snow. So much snow. That's the one where like on PEI, people had snow up to their roofs and it wasn't quite that bad in Nova Scotia, but it was close. Yeah. Very grateful for the community we had around there. I remember like before you left, we'd gotten power of attorney just in case I needed to do anything else. Cause we weren't even set up as a couple to like have a joint bank account or anything like that. Little did we know all of the things I would end up using that for over the years because you were gone. We bought a car, we bought a house. I moved into our military house on my own. I moved into our house. We bought in Greenwood eight months pregnant without you. Cause you were away. I was in the Arctic for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, It's crazy to think about all these big life things that like I just did on my own because you were gone. Do you remember anything special we did to help get through the deployments? For me as an individual, I just did a lot of like compartmentalizing and trying to focus on what I was doing. And then if I got to talk to you, it was like, sweet, he's alive and I get to talk to him. But I really tried to just go with the flow of the day to day and try to keep myself busy. I do remember going very extreme when it came to care packages. So I remember your birthday one, like the whole inside of the box was covered in streamers and there was so much stuff in that box. Yeah, you sent me cake in a jar. There was mason jars full of cake that I could share with my friends, fake mustaches. You would send me USB sticks pretty regularly with like another set of the latest you know, top hits for music so that I could listen to what you were listening to at home when I was working out. Yeah. And Christmas, I remember the Christmas package. Once we realized you weren't going to be there, I think they even let us do a special Christmas mail. Yeah, they did. Because they got there pretty quick. But I had sent you like a little mini light up Christmas tree and lights to decorate your bunk and Santa hat and obviously like our traditional Christmas traditions of pajamas and things like that in your box, just to try and make it feel a little bit special. It was nice for sure. It was tough time. It was not easy to be away at Christmas. I really wanted to be home with you, but those things helped for sure. Yeah. And I just got to, you know, be one of those people that kept their Christmas decorations up forever because put them up after Remembrance Day and kept them up until you came home. And we could actually have Christmas, which ended up being February. So it was definitely the longest I've ever had Christmas decorations up. What do you think has been the hardest part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? For some people, and I think for me at one point as well, I think the change and need to adapt to new places, new plans, all of that stuff is really hard. Change is kind of a constant in life, though. I think for most couples, this doesn't really sink in until you have kids, just how much things change. Every couple of weeks with kids, something changes. So I think I've gotten a lot better at dealing with change and adapting to things as they come, kind of rolling with it, making the best out of situations, 
now. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely grown in in that area. For me, the hardest part is the unknown. I'm pretty big at compartmentalizing and living to make kind of the best out of moments. So that definitely has helped me a lot. But you just, you never know when a flight will be unserviceable or when a call out will happen when you're on call. Remember your check ride for your aircraft captain upgrade? Yeah, it got delayed a bunch and ended up being on my 30th birthday. Yeah, so we were like, all right, he's got this upgraded flight. A couple of weeks later is his birthday. We should be pretty safe to plan his birthday because he's not on the schedule yet. And yeah, delay after delay. Finally ends up you take off like the morning of your birthday party, finally. And this is like his 30th birthday. So we've got like, I don't know, 20, 25 people coming to our house for supper, I think even. And the whole time I'm like, is he going to make it to his birthday party? No idea because you're flying. So obviously I don't know when you're going to get down. I'm just like waiting for a message. People are like, is he home yet? Is he coming? Like people are showing up to your birthday party at our house. Don't know where you are. And then eventually we get a text message and I'm like, he's coming. And he passed. And I just remember being like so relieved that I didn't have to like just host this giant party by myself. That wasn't even for me. Yeah. And then it was pretty epic, though, when you showed up and it's not only your birthday and all your friends are around you to celebrate, but also you had this good news that you passed your upgrade blade. Yeah, that was a great day. Yeah. What has been the best part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? The community you get to be part of is just incredible. You have to do work and put in work to kind of make it happen. But you have so many instant connection points with other people who are in the RCAF. Those people get it. They know what you've been through or what you might be going through. You can laugh at kind of the struggles and ridiculousness of the system, but you can also learn from each other. I find there's always someone willing to make new friends or looking for friends. And there's always kind of places to stay around the world, which is pretty cool if you like to travel. What's been your coolest experience as a spouse to someone in the RCAF? Flying the Aurora with you was a pretty surreal moment for me. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Before that, I'd never really even pictured you flying an airplane, believe it or not. So to get to do that together on family day, was pretty neat. I've seen you and your friends study every part of that plane and talk about it for hours on end. And then to actually be in it, watching you do what you do is pretty cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed that experience too. For this next and last question, I'd like you to picture a young pilot, maybe somebody who's going through the school now. What piece of advice would you give to a young pilot to help them have a successful family life? There's probably two things that I would suggest. I'll talk a little bit more about each of them. The first is to ask questions and the second is to find community. So by asking questions, whether you're the spouse or partner or the military member, ask the questions so that you know what to expect. Unmet expectations, as probably most people can agree with, are often the cause of turmoil in a relationship. It's not an easy road, but there's amazing resources to help families thrive in the RCAF, but you have to know about them. And sometimes you have to push and ask specifically for them. Talking to other couples or colleagues who may be that stage or two ahead of you is kind of a great way to learn 
about what the future could look like and issues that could come up, they really should write a gen file for family life, I think, if there isn't already one out there, just to give people insight. Relationships are tough in or out of the military, but I really believe strongly that if you're both willing to put in the work, there's lots of resources available to help you succeed along the way. And when it comes to finding community, finding community is what will make your life feel full. We had a great group of friends before we had kids, and we have an amazing community here in Portage right now. And having those people helps your mental health, but it also gives you options to help manage your family life, especially during those times when you may be solo parenting. So it can be a huge support just to help you navigate all the different things that you as a military family might come up against, whether it's deployments or trips away or things like that. And I think just being open and willing to kind of pay it forward. I remember when we first got here, people didn't really go away a lot. But when you guys would do your cross countries, I'd always be like, who's away? Who's away? Let's make sure we have them over. So it's one less meal they have to think about or Mm -hmm. something like that when someone's away. And I think just looking for those little opportunities to also give back and help support your community where you are is just a good way to constantly make sure that the military community is going to keep supporting one another in the future. Yeah, for sure. So Melissa actually came home today during her workday for her lunch break to record this. So I just want to thank you so much. I know from personal experience how busy you are, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you. No problem. If you ever need me back, you know where I live. All right. So our next guest today on the Pilot Project podcast is my good friend, Janet Musters. Listeners will remember our show on Tack Hill with Janet's husband, Pete. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thanks for having me. So Janet, can you start by quickly telling us about yourself? I was born and raised on a small farm in Southern Alberta near a little village called Milo. After I graduated, I got my private pilot's license thinking this would be an exciting career for me. After I finished my private pilot's license, I took a year and went backpacking with my friend and realized I was way more fun than having any career. So spend a while backpacking and waitressing just to fund my traveling addiction. Then uh, decided I needed an actual career and figured people around the world like to eat. So I went and got a culinary arts degree, worked at that for a little bit, realized it really wasn't for me. And then after a brief stint in banking, I actually ended up at the age of 27 going into school for my nursing degree and uh, became a registered nurse and kind of realized along the way that this was actually where I was meant to be and have been working at that ever since. So you've had a lot of adventures, eh? I have had a few twists and turns <laughs> along the way, trying to figure, you know, as everyone has, figuring life out, figuring out who they are and what their real passions and interests are. Yeah. I mean, that actually is kind of similar to Pete, right? Like he had a couple different stages to his his career through life before he landed on being a pilot in the RCAF. Exactly. So, How did you and Pete meet each other? Uh, the running joke is that I bought him off the internet. <laughs> I was single and I was in school full time and I was working part time. So I was really, it was hard to meet people. One night I was sitting there, finished my homework, had a glass or two of wine and realized maybe I should try this online dating thing. The first profile I ever saw was Peter's and he's the only one I ever contacted. Unfortunately, in order to be able to contact the person whose profile you're viewing, you had to sign up and pay $60 a month 
for this dating app. And, you know, I'm a student with a mortgage at the time. So I kind of sat down, looked at my budget and realized, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to eat instant noodles for a month in the hopes that this guy is going to turn out to be something special. And he was. So nine months later, after about five months apart for basic training and a two day engagement, we actually eloped, which uh, is very typically military, I think. Yeah, we've been married for over 12 years now, and we have two beautiful daughters. So the tagline is not bad for 60 bucks is kind of how we <laughs> kind of defined our relationship. Yeah, you got good value for money. Yeah, good ROI on that one, yeah. for sure. <laughs> what was your initial thought when it came to dating someone in the RCAF? Well, Pete actually wasn't in the RCAF when we met. He had his commercial license, and he'd done some crop dusting and some work as a glider tow pilot. But, you know, bills have to be paid, and those typically don't paid too well. So he was actually teaching high school social studies when I met him. He had been applying to the RCAF for about, I think, five years, and they just weren't hiring anybody, weren't hiring anybody. And then shortly after we met, the RCAF called and said, guess what? Your application's accepted. So for him, it was awful. He had just met this great girl, and now he's got this great job, and he wasn't sure which one he might have to give up or how compatible the two are going to be. But Fortunately, given my previously somewhat nomadic lifestyle, I was actually up for the adventure. So the challenge was that he took off for his five-month basic training course only four months after we met. So he didn't have a cell phone at that time. And uh, we actually wrote letters back and forth while he was at basic training for those five months, which is kind of sweet and nostalgic. I still have all of them bound with, you know, bound with a ribbon in a safe little uh box somewhere, but it documents a relationship from the typical, you know, dating, getting to know you letters to I'll bring the engagement ring to your graduation ceremony and I have the church booked for two days later. So it's kind of fun to have, you know, the chronology of our entire relationship documented on paper. So you, you guys basically arranged that by letter while he was on basic training. Yep. And the occasional phone call from the hallway. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. The pay phones (laughs) in the mega. Yep. That's, that's, the only other source of communication. Yeah, there wasn't much privacy back then. No, not so much. So yeah, that was basically how we arranged everything and booked everything. And uh, we got a cell phone shortly after he graduated. (laughs) (laughs) So you're pretty busy. You work as a registered nurse and also as a nurse injector. And you and Pete also have two kids. How have you found balancing employment, parenthood, and being married to an RCAF pilot? It requires a very large calendar in our kitchen. Some days it feels a little bit like hot potato, you know, okay, you're on school, daycare drop off this day, and then I can do pickup, then you have drop off and pickup, unless my last client cancels, in which case you can take the later flights and I'll pick up. It's, I think one of the biggest challenges with being a military spouse is that you often have no support. You're often dropped into this random town. You have no family, no friends. You're trying to do it all on your own until you find your tribe of people. I mean, every military spouse knows the struggle of filling out the emergency contact lists on the daycare and school applications. It's like, what was that grocery store clerk's name? She's nice. I'll I'll ask for her number. I'm sure she wouldn't mind being our contact. You literally know no one. Yeah. Fortunately, when we moved here, there were a couple other orphan military families who had also recently been posted in. So we kind of banded together and formed our own second family here. And it's been pretty amazing ever since. But Juggling schedules, especially when my hospital shifts are 12 hours and the clinic shifts have varying hours and Peter's doing cross countries and night flyings, it can just get a little chaotic. We go week by week and just try to keep things as routine as possible for the kids. And in three years of school, we've only forgotten to pick the kids up once. So I think <laughs> I think we're managing pretty well. <laughs> 
So Pete deployed to Iraq at a time in life when you had a 22 month old and a two month old. What was that like for you? <laughs> that was rough, I guess is the best way to describe it. Fortunately, it was a bit of a shorter deployment. His deployment was just under four months. I know some people can be deployed for six months, nine months. So I was grateful for that. He was actually initially supposed to be on the first wave of deployments, which would have had him away when our youngest was born. But fortunately, he was able to switch with someone on the second wave so that he could at least be here for her birth. I remember being very intentional about making sure that we had family photos done after our youngest was born. You know, on the surface, you tell yourself, oh, it's just because we want to celebrate our growing family. But deep down, you know, it's because your spouse is deploying and like, well, what if? It was really hard. We were living in a town where I really only had made one close friend and I was too exhausted to get out and do many activities. My oldest didn't nap well and I had a newborn and they both woke up two to three times a night each at different times. And my closest family was four hours away. So I was existing at about three to four hours of sleep a night for almost four months. Oh my gosh. It, yeah, fun times. I was able to spend several weeks with my parents, fortunately, and that was helpful. But there's a reason that they use sleep deprivation as a torture device. <laughs> I can attest to that. Uh, I remember at one point, I think my lowest was when my kitchen sink got clogged and I'm lugging my kids all around town. I'm half asleep. I'm trying to borrow plumbing snakes from Peter's coworkers and our neighbors. And then we get home and the sink won't unclog and I'm covered in bits of whatever was in the drain and the kids are crying and hungry and I'm starting to cry. It was just, it's one of those moments where you're like, it can't get any worse than this. So, but we got through it one long day at a time and lived to tell the tale, fortunately. Uh, I remember when Peter got home and he was on post-deployment leave, he told me he wanted to do a Janet deployment week where I basically existed in the house with no responsibility other than, you know, breastfeeding our youngest. And he really wanted to try and understand what the experience was like for me. And I think it was quite an eye opener for him. I stood there the first day and I looked around and I literally had no clue what to do with myself. I was completely disoriented. Wow. That's an awesome idea that Pete had to do that. Mm -hmm. But what a crazy hard experience that sounds like to have that deployment. And you know, the part that really hit me was when you were talking about making sure you get photos done just in case. Yeah, like I still kind of tear up a little bit thinking about it because you're just like, you know, most people would document the birth of a child, right? Yeah. Just as a happy time. And it was kind of this really mixed emotions, like being like, I really want to make sure we get those photos because otherwise we'll have no photos as a family. Yeah. Yeah you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of a mixed emotion that day, but I'm glad we got it. Yeah. You know, everybody kind of copes with those, those thoughts and those fears in different ways. And exactly. It's, it is really hard though. It's a very hard thing to say goodbye to your loved ones. And I think harder for the ones who are staying behind mm -hmm. because, you know, when we go over, we're busy, we're doing mm -hmm. our job. You we, have control we, over your situation. We have control and we have all the information. Yeah, exactly. And you can't have all the information. Yeah, we just kind of sit there waiting and, you know, when is the next phone call? Mm -hmm. When is the next text? I haven't heard from him in a while. You know, it's just, you're kind of along for the ride and you're just waiting. So. How did you get through that? Well, <laughs> I was pretty busy with the kids and fortunately that just kept me distracted enough. You know, I just... As many spouses, I think, you just throw yourself into family life and you throw yourself into your kids and, you know, there's often not a lot of time left at the end of the day. And those few minutes you do have, you just kind of, you know, let it pass and get back to whatever you're doing. And 
that was my coping mechanism anyways, mm-hmm. just to kind of keep busy and keep my brain occupied. So you just don't let it stray into all those other thoughts. What's been the hardest part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? Besides deployment, I think the hardest part for me so far was when he was posted to 408 Squadron in Edmonton, which is a tactical helicopter squadron. When we were there, it just seemed like the unit was running at 110% at all times, and they were just incredibly busy, which, I mean, it's not necessarily bad, but given the nature of what they do, there was absolutely zero predictability to Peter's Mm -hmm. schedule. I mean, he would go to work on a Tuesday morning and I would have no idea if I should plan dinner for him Tuesday night. The schedule would change multiple times a day. And at one point he realized he had worked for two months without a day off because they were helping with wildfires. They were doing training exercises. And he'd always be coming home saying, okay, I should have this weekend off. And then he didn't. Or I should be getting a day or two off in lieu next week. But then he had to replace somebody on an exercise at the last minute and took off for a week. You basically just plan your life as if your spouse doesn't exist. And then if they happen to be there, it's a bonus. But if inevitably they aren't, then it doesn't mess with your schedule. I mean, you, I couldn't even plan appointments, you know, dentists, doctors, haircuts, anything, if it was at all dependent on Peter being available to take care of the kids. So it was really hard on our oldest, who was still under two at the time. You know, kids crave routine. And she had no idea if Peter was coming or going or if he was home, but he had to sleep. Because he was night flying, so he couldn't play with her. Deployments are hard, but at least they're somewhat predictable. You know, you have sort of a set start date, a set end date, you know, one goodbye and one hello. But this was an entirely different challenge. I think another hard part was when he came to me. I think this was just a couple of weeks after he got back from his Iraq deployment. And, you know, you're still in that reintegration stage of the relationship, which is as challenging as the separation part. And I'm recovering from the exhaustion of the last four months and still kind of in that postpartum hormonal, you know, flux. And he comes home from work and he says to me, oh, by the way, I think we're being posted to Manitoba in a few months where we know no one in my family's support is now going to be two provinces away. So that was also another, <laughs> another low, I would say, another challenge. So Yeah. You know, luckily it turned out to be a great thing. It did. It really did. But you, you have no idea. Yeah. When you just get the news, right? And yeah. There's a couple things there that I think are worth touching on. One is you mentioned like the difficulty of reintegration. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's really hard. When you come back, everyone is really excited, right? Yeah. But there's some apprehension and something you have to realize if you're the person who is away is that while you've been gone, mm-hmm. your spouse has figured out a way to make everything work without you. Yeah. You have your routine, you have your, your systems in place. Exactly. And that that's okay. And Mm -hmm. you have to like sort of softly reinsert yourself into the pattern of life around your house Mm -hmm. because they already have their ways. And, and like, you can't just kick in the door and be like, I'm home. It's going to be back to the way it used to be. Mm -hmm. It's just not how it works. Like I, I think it surprises a lot of people that coming home, can be really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And just depending on each person's emotional or affection stage by nature, right? My husband's a very affectionate person. I take a little bit longer to warm up. So there's always that clash too, right? He wants to rush in and he wants to give me a big hug. And I just need a little bit more time to kind of get my brain kind of wrapped around, okay, you know, I have my spouse back now. And yeah, and then just, I've been running on fumes and I'm exhausted and I've managed to figure out a way to cope. And now you want to come in and mess this way up. And no, you can't. This is, this is how I survive. And mm-hmm. just sort of 
realizing that I need to let go of some of my systems um, and he needs to adopt some of them and, you know, just kind of finessing that, you know, it, it takes, takes a little while. It's not just like everybody's back together and it's all hunky dory. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a process. So. Yeah. And I think that's important for people to know who haven't deployed before that that's something they might face. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The other thing that I think is important to highlight is just acknowledging how tough it can be at an operational unit and that that busyness and craziness is just the way things are there. And I think that for young pilots who are listening, you need to realize that there's a reason that the intent is not to have people at an operational unit for like 10 years in a row because it just causes so much burnout and it can be so hard on families. And that's why they want to rotate you into a school or a ground position. So especially if you can get one of those school jobs, it provides like such a great break Mm -hmm. for you and for your family. Yeah. And especially when you're thinking about the kids and that was my biggest challenge is just the unpredictability of the day to day, you know, if I, if somebody said to me, okay, so for the next two weeks, your husband's going to be working every day. Great. I can plan for that. I can maybe make a longer trip out to visit family. I can maybe, you know, plan my life a little bit, but when it's going day to day, like, oh, maybe tomorrow, or, you know, we'll have time together as a family or, oh, I'm going to be off this weekend. So you get the kids really hyped up for, okay, daddy's going to be home this weekend. Let's oh, there's a festival in town. We're going to go to this festival as a family. And then Friday, he's packing his bags to go off to some other training exercise because, you know, there's a last minute change of plans. And then the kids are brokenhearted. Like, I thought we were going to do this. Then you're doing all these plans you made by yourself. And it's interesting, the plans you make when you think there's going to be two of you (laughs) to take care of two kids versus the plans you make when you know you're going to be solo are often very different. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah, it's exhausting and it's frustrating and it's stressful in a different way as deployments are, but it doesn't mean it's any less difficult. So absolutely coming to Portage and just seeing that routine. And even in just the first couple of weeks where you're here, Pete would come home from work and be like, okay. I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to go to work at nine. I'm going to be home, you know, at six. And the kids were like, okay. So he went to work at nine and he was actually home at six or maybe even a few minutes earlier. And just the change that I saw in our oldest, like our youngest was one. She didn't, time's not a really irrelevant thing for her at that point, but our oldest was three. And the change I saw in her was amazing. Just to have some routine, some predictability. I can trust that my parent is going to be there when they say they're going to be there was huge for her and for me as well. Just, I remember Pete came to me one day and he's like, okay, so next month we're looking at doing some cross countries and this and that. And what do you think about me going for these days on cross country? And I just stood there and I looked at him. I'm like, I'm sorry, next month? We're planning next month? You know, my brain was ready to explode because I'd never been able to plan tomorrow. Yeah. So just kind of, being able to relax into the knowledge that we can make plans, we can have some routine was a huge weight off my shoulders. And yeah, I think that the military members who are working often don't appreciate how much that can mean to the person at home trying to manage everything day to day, just to be able to have that predictability. Yeah, for sure. What's been the best part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? The adventures are awesome. That's for sure. You know, always imagining where you might go next. Are we going to go to Comox? Are we going to go to Goose Bay? Could it be an outcan posting to Germany or the States? You know, getting to live in areas of the country that you never thought you would. I, in a million years, never would have thought I'd be living 
in Southern Manitoba, yet here we are and we're finding all kinds of awesome things to do. It has been a lot of fun, but honestly, the best part has really been all the amazing families you meet. You know, we all have this unique shared experience that not a lot of other people can really understand or relate to. You know, we're kind of in it together and other military spouses just get it. You know, they understand the challenges, they can anticipate what your needs are going to be. And we really just create this community of support. And once you've been in the military long enough, there aren't too many places that you can be posted to where you won't know at least one person. So your tribe just kind of grows from there. But I've said before that this is the best and the worst part of being a military spouse. You get to meet all these amazing families and all these amazing people, but then you also have to leave them. So it's kind of a double-edged sword from my experience. Yeah, that's true. It It is hard because, you know, everybody in this lifestyle learns the skill of making fast friends. Yes, absolutely. Which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But it, it is tough because we're always moving on. Mm-hmm. You're always losing, not losing friends, but those friends are always, they might be only a year away from saying goodbye for who knows how long. And that's tough. It is. And I think for us, our biggest challenge now is because we've been here for five years, you know, you're always talking postings coming up and where are we going to go? And just kind of trying to broach the subject with our kids because they love their life here too. And just trying to build that resiliency in them. And every time we bring it up, just it really upsets them. The thought that their friends aren't going to be here all their, for the rest of their lives because they were so young when we moved here and they've had such a formative part of their childhood so far here. So that's something that I'm anticipating and dreading eventually moving on. But in the meantime, they've just had the best group of friends they could ever had for the last five years. So we will see what the future holds. Yeah, I can relate to that. It is really hard to think about either leaving or others leaving. And it makes it so much tougher even when you've got kids in the picture who have mm-hmm. made those connections and you really don't want to see their little hearts break. Yeah, and it'll be the first time we've had to consider their feelings and their emotions, you know, up to a certain point. It's like, you're two, you're coming with us. <laughs> There's, you don't have much say, but now that they're older, they, you know, we want to include them in the decision-making process as much as we can. And just trying to figure out what that looks like is challenging. Yeah, that's something we'll have to navigate as we keep going forward. Oh, man. <laughs> What's been your coolest experience as a spouse to someone in the RCAF? That's a tough one. I was trying to think about it. And I think... I think one of the coolest experiences is always when they have family day at the base once a year. You know, you get to have an opportunity to take a flight with your spouse or somebody else if you want to try a different aircraft. You know, just watching the kids watch their dad, it really helps them connect with and understand what he's doing when he can't be with them on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's really great. And I mean, flying low in a helicopter is always pretty fun too. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I'm sure we're not going as low as they usually fly, you know. (laughs) So I can only imagine what it's like for them, but I enjoy it. That's my favorite part of it is getting those little experiences that not a lot of other people would get to have and to connect with what Peter's doing on a day-to-day basis is also a really big thing for us. Yeah, for sure. It is. It's huge to get that to make it real instead of just make it an idea. Mm-hmm. You see them flying overhead across, you know, over our house every day, multiple helicopters and airplanes, but it's different when you get to be in the, in the aircraft with them. So I want you to picture a new pilot 
here in Southport, someone who's in training, let's say you run into them at a mess dinner and they ask for advice. What advice would you give to that young pilot to help them have a successful family life in the RCAF? I think the biggest piece from my point of view would be you have to be willing and able to see this life from your spouse's perspective as well as your own, right? Really putting in time and effort to understand that, yes, we're not being deployed. We're not going into war zones and other dangerous situations, but we are still enduring a lot of stress, trying to manage home life alone and normalize things for the kids and figure out how to build an entire support group from scratch every few years and just keep some of that burden off of you so that you can be fully present in your job and stay safe so that you can come home to us. So I think that would be my biggest piece of advice is to really appreciate the piece that we are doing at home that allows you to be present and active at work. And giving your wife her own deployment week every once in a while is also highly recommended. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what are the ways that someone can do that? But that's actually a great way they can mm -hmm. is to take on that role for a week and mm -hmm. really get a taste of what that's like. Yeah, just appreciating that we may not have imminent danger or stress in that regard, but it's a different level of challenges mm -hmm. and it's no less valid or valuable to the situation. Okay, Janet, that's going to wrap it up for this interview. So I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and being on the show. Thanks so much, Ryan. It was great to be here. Yeah. My next guest today on the Pilot Project podcast is my former squatter mate, Michaela Goddard. Welcome to the show, Michaela. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Michaela, can you start by quickly telling us about yourself? Yeah, so I grew up in Alberta for the most part, and I joined the military right after high school. So I signed up when I was 18, and I went right away to the Royal Military College. When I was there, I studied English lit because the military told me that I didn't need a specific degree to be a navigator. So I chose one that I was interested in rather than one that's actually useful. <laughs> um, so I studied English at RMC and I graduated in 2014. And then after that, I was supposed to go to Winnipeg to do my navigator training or AXO course. And once that course was done, I got posted to Greenwood to 405 with you, or I guess 404 technically to do the training on the Aurora. and then. 405. And I finished my career out in Greenwood. I retired actually December 30th of this past year. So 2022. Okay, yeah. cool. Now your husband is Paul and you were a service couple, which means you were both serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. How did the two of you meet? Uh, we actually met at RMC. Paul was a year ahead of me in the same squadron. So the, the college is broken up into 12 or 13 squadrons, depending what year you were there. And so he was a year ahead of me. So that year is kind of assigned to be mentors to the first years or the year below them. And so I actually met him my first couple of weeks at RMC and we became best friends once we had a little bit more freedom after the first year orientation period. Yep. So yeah, we became friends and we actually didn't start dating each other until Paul was at his wings graduation from Southport and was getting posted to Labrador. And I was in Winnipeg at the time on my training. Oh, wow. Yeah. We'd been friends for about five, five and a half years before we actually got together officially. And then he proposed five months later. And oh, wow. then, yeah, which is great. Uh, except, you know, the people that didn't know us were a little shocked, a little concerned. Yeah, but you'd known each other for we'd known each six other for years almost long, at that point. Yeah, for a long time. And we mm -hmm. were really good friends. And my parents loved him <laughs> more <laughs> than the other people I dated. So, I mean, it was anyone that knew us was really excited about it. But then we didn't get married until 2018. So we got married just before his posting in Goose Bay was due to come up so that 
he could get posted down to the same location I was at. Which at the time was Greenwood. Was right? Greenwood, yeah. yeah. The timing wasn't just that. We also had to juggle a lot of other family things. Um, his brother is in the infantry and was deploying at the time. So we had to kind of work around trying to get everybody there for the wedding and have it done before the posting season came out. And there were so many factors that came into it. So we ended up getting married in February in the mountains. And everyone was great and no one got cold. Is <laughs> <laughs> what they told me. <laughs> so when you guys decided to date, what was your initial thought when it came to dating someone in the RCAF? Like we'd known each other for five years. I'd been in the military at that point for five years. And I had dated other people also in the military because I guess the nature of the college of RMCU was that it was so time consuming and so all consuming that the chances of meeting someone outside of it mm -hmm. were it was like zero. Um, especially if you had any time to like leave the peninsula, like the campus and go meet people. I also found a lot of people seemed to be uncomfortable with having if they weren't in the military, dating a woman that was in the military, even though like I was in the Air Force. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm not hardcore at all. <laughs> I'm not an infantier, so this should be fine. But a lot of people seem to have a problem with that. And I get that, too, because like the implication is that you'll be moving a lot mm -hmm. and that and people aren't willing to do that. And that's fine. So at the time, like the fact that he was in the military almost made it better because he would understand like my schedules, even just things like terminology and yeah. um, acronyms and stuff. And like processes, like trying to get a leave pass in and trying to be able to, you know, schedule things around exercises. Like that wasn't something I had to explain to him because he already knew it. So yeah. it actually was like a point in my favor, but it's pretty much all consuming, especially when you get to your operational squadron. So like, I never would have had the time to meet anybody else. <laughs> not, not that that's the only reason I would fall at all. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, it for me, it was like kind of a no brainer because it was something that allowed us to start off kind of on the same footing. So for you guys, it almost made it easier. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it helped too, because pilot and AXO training isn't similar in like the steps, but it's similar in the kind of like intensity and focus that you need for those really kind of concentrated periods of time. Mm -hmm. And you still are on a flying schedule. So a lot of that commonality made it easier for us to understand how we were going to schedule our lives together too, because everything came down to schedules. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> You decided to leave the RCAF to pursue other options. Can you tell us a little more about that? I was kind of two years into my time at 405, and I was feeling like I wanted a different challenge intellectually, I guess. I wanted to do something that I enjoyed and that I had a passion for, and submarine warfare studying was like not doing it for me. And I was also a little bit worried that if I were to go to school later years down the road, that none of my teachers would remember me. So trying to get you know, academic references to apply for a program would be a little harder. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a master's program while I was still flying. And my first thought was that I wasn't going to get in. And then I got in. And then my next consideration, because we still weren't married yet, and we still hadn't bought a house together or anything, was that I wanted to get funding for sure from the military to do the master's. And if I didn't, I was going to delay it. And then I got the funding, which I wasn't expecting. So I actually, <laughs> <laughs> I actually started my master's during my check rides for MOAT, so our, the Aurora training course. MOAT is the Maritime Operational Aircrew Training Course. So that right. wasn't, wasn't great timing, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a really intense time in your training. It wasn't the best timing I could have picked, but it worked out well. And so I finished a Master's of Library and Information Studies, which is like a total 180 from flying on the Aurora. But it was something that I was like really enjoyed and found that I really like had a passion for. And originally when I had thought about going to school, part of the goal was that eventually I would need a master's anyway if I were going to get promoted. So I would do it now and have it done out of the way. 
And then as I was going to school, I realized like I really enjoyed that a lot more. And I was getting a lot of more gratification out of that subject area and that like work than I would be hunting submarines mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, flying. I did really enjoy flying, but it just wasn't making my brain work in the same way. And I really enjoyed doing my master's. And then the next kind of wrench in the plan, because I had expected that I would stay in probably until my pension at least. Mm-hmm. The next wrench in the plan was that COVID hit and Paul and I actually had time together, <laughs> which like never happens. So obviously we got pregnant <laughs> as many other people did. Yeah. Um, and so we had our son, Owen, and I took a year off from maternity leave and Paul took the first six months off with me. And we had such an amazing time as a family, like being able to go on trips together and do kind of whatever we wanted and everything. And going back to work after maternity was exceptionally hard for me. I had a very, very hard time. And I realized that like, I just wasn't passionate about it anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be deployed on a moment's notice. I didn't want to go on exercises where I'd be away for weeks at a time because I was missing so much from my son's life, just Mm -hmm. being at work. Um, and so like when you combine that with the fact that I wasn't really getting job satisfaction, I didn't get that same kind of like feel good feeling when I was at work. It kind of became a no brainer for me to put in my release. If you love the job, it makes those sacrifices easier to bear. But if you've found that it's become something that you're not passionate about anymore, it's a lot harder to make those sacrifices. Yeah, exactly. And it was just getting to the point where it wasn't worth the time and energy that we were spending on it for me to stay in a job that I really wasn't loving anymore. Mm -hmm. And the other big thing is we were both trying to fly at this time. So Paul is, um, he just got off of 413 squadron for search and rescue. So he's a cormorant pilot. So his schedule was all over the place. He, you know, he'd have night shifts, he'd be on call on weekends, or he'd be out in the day and, you know, he'd get a call out 10 minutes before shift ended and then he'd be gone for the next like eight hours or more. So then if you add onto that with the Aurora hours of flying like eight hour flights, six or eight hour flights, and, you know, getting pushed for serviceability and that kind of stuff. It ended up that like we didn't have reliable childcare mm-hmm. in terms of like we did have childcare for my son, but asking them to like watch him from seven in the morning or six in the morning, even if I had to go in early for a flight till whenever one of us could get home just wasn't really a feasible option. Yeah. And like, especially not for a one year old that needs that routine and getting to bed in their own house and all that other stuff. So it became just like an absolute nightmare trying to schedule Paul's work schedules with my reintegration training and my flights and simulators and everything. And it was just, it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So. so it sounds like the writing was on the wall. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned a second career. Now that you folks are here in Portage La Prairie, you're having to sacrifice that career until you can find childcare in order to support Paul in his flying career. Do you find that difficult? Yeah, we had kind of had the expectation that we would be able to find at least part-time childcare and I would be able to kind of ease my way into this new career and this new field, even if it was part-time just to get my feet wet and see kind of what area I wanted to work in. Cause it's pretty broad. Like there's so many different ways that I can apply my schooling. So I was really looking forward to that too. And it also helps when you move to a new place to have like a cohort of mm-hmm. people. So when we moved here, like the families here have all been amazing, but there's no like, I don't have any kind of job satisfaction or like meeting new people and working with new people. It's all meeting with the primary aim basically of like making new friends for me and for Owen. Mm -hmm. Unlike other postings that we've had where like I will get posted into my own job and I'll make work friends and, and acquaintances and, and whatever. There's none of that. And so then it's not a good way to start, I guess, because it's quite isolating Mm -hmm. when you don't have a job. Like you, 
you don't have this like mechanism that's built in to meet people. You really have to like go out of your comfort zone, set up play dates with random people that you've never met yeah. and just hope like hope they're cool. And well, when you're posted somewhere and you're part of the posting, like when you're in the military and you get posted, you basically have an automatic set of friends you're going to make. You're going to meet a bunch of people who you have at least one big thing in common. Yeah. And you're going to make friends. Like it's very easy. Exactly. Like it's, there's so much commonality between you and someone else in the military that like, even if you have never been posted to the same place and you've never met before, you have those people that you can talk to about things. You have similar experiences. Yeah, exactly. So you have that like innate link between you, but mm -hmm when we move so like paul will go to work and then it's just owen and i hanging out and as cool as that kid is it's not mentally stimulating yeah really for sure. right so like a lot of the stuff that i was craving that i wasn't getting in my job and that i really found through school i'm not able to continue to pursue because like you can't leave a two-year-old at home i'm told so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a bad idea so we really need to like we were waiting and we're on every wait list possible. Mm -hmm. So that's that's harder. It wasn't a part of the posting that I was expecting because I was just really excited for this next chapter because for me, it meant a new career, you know, a new chance to contribute and to make new friends and everything like that. Like that part wasn't scary, but when you get there and then you don't have anything to do, if you know what I mean, like you do, obviously you have tons of stuff to do because you're setting up your life in a new place, but you don't have that career purpose. It makes it really hard. Yeah, 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 for sure. A major challenge of being a service couple is postings. You were posted apart while engaged for three years. How did you make that work? A lot of FaceTime <laughs> <laughs> and Skype and things. So for the first year that we were apart, I was in Winnipeg and Paul was in Labrador. So we had a two hour time difference. So that worked out a little bit better because that by the time Paul was having dinner, I was getting off work. So we'd have a chance to talk while I was working on dinner and he was kind of starting to wind down for the evening. So we'd usually plan to call each other. And even if we didn't like sit and talk for very long, we always kind of made an attempt to make sure that we talked for at least 10 minutes mm -hmm. a day, whether it was on the phone or whether it was a video call. And then once it got posted Greenwood, it made it a lot easier in some ways because we were in the same time zone. So with that, again, we would FaceTime like every day and you didn't even have to be sitting there like, you know, when you have a video call and you're like really intent, and you, yeah. that's all you're doing. We would just have FaceTime on while we're doing stuff, yeah, while sure. we're cooking, while we're reading, while I was doing homework <laughs> and studying, that kind of thing, just so that we could talk as if we were in the same room. Mm -hmm. That made a, a big deal. And then basically all of our time off was spent visiting each other. So um, I think Paul, between work and visiting me from Labrador, he got like the Air Canada elite status for like 50 <laughs> legs in a year. You know, like it was just yeah. a lot, a lot of visiting back and forth. And just making that like conscious effort to spend time together. There was a couple of times where we had overlapping exercises and the time change would just be nuts. So at that point, we would just send each other messages and whenever you could answer, you could answer. And those parts were kind of hard, like, especially when you get used to being able to shock every night. But it was just something that like we both understood had to happen. We both knew it wasn't going to last forever. And that was kind of it. We did manage to see each other quite a bit at the time. The Griffin sims were in gagetown okay i think they still are but so he would come down to gagetown and then like i'd be able to go out to new brunswick or he'd take extra leave and come to nova scotia anytime there was like a, a reason to come south or for me to go north it would work so we did manage to see each other more than i had expected to in the first little bit but when we were winnipeg and goose bay that was 
that was pretty hard. I think we only saw each other two or three times that year. Yeah, that's tough. So you got married. Yep. You both are in the same place. But now you have to manage the schedules of two different people who are flying and maintain a relationship. How did you guys do that? For the first little bit, it was almost like he wasn't there because he came down to Greenwood. We bought a house, but didn't get it till the summer. And he went on his Cormorant course. So <laughs> I had his dog now and my dog. Which was in England? Part of it's in England, yeah. So the Sims are in England. And that week that they had Sims in England, the one week on course you can't take leave was the week that we got possession of our house. Oh, perfect. So I moved both of us into our house. <laughs> and after that, once he got back in the fall, we basically have a shared calendar and we would write out. We started initially by writing it out on paper, like who was flying what day and whatever, trying to figure out who would be making dinner and who not. But Paul's schedule was changing so much because at the time they only had four first officers for the cormorant and one was usually gone for training. So he was on call at least half the month, if not more, depending on the month. So it ended up just being that we didn't bother with writing down our schedules anymore. We would just kind of have like a, a talk in the morning or the night before, figure out who was where, if we needed anyone to come and look at the dogs, if we were going to be gone for a while and go from there. So once we got into that rhythm, it made it a little bit easier because we knew what days to expect that we would be gone, what days we would have time together. And when we did have time together, we made it like very purposeful. Yeah. So, you know, we'd make sure we'd go out on dates together and like go exploring, do stuff that we enjoyed, even if it was just like watching a movie at home and having some popcorn. And any time that we had a chance to take time off together, we took whether it was like, okay, you get to leave early on a Friday or we requested overlapping Christmas leave to make sure that no one was like, we were both not on call for one chunk of time together. So we knew we couldn't get called out, which was nice. Um, but yeah, it just took a lot of coordination and last minute changes because like you can attest to the schedule changes all the time oh, yeah. on both parts. And, you know, if you think it's going to be a quiet day and then all of a sudden Paul would get a call out and he'd have to go fly up to like Northern Quebec, then, well, guess I'm alone for dinner tonight, probably for breakfast tomorrow. And he's going to be sleeping when I get home. And that was probably the hardest part is that we didn't often have night flights. And then when we did, it was scheduled, whereas he was on call, you know, half the nights. <laughs> so he would get called out and, and leave and he'd be gone for however many hours it took for the search. And then he'd be sleeping the day. So we'd kind of lose a day with the night shifts. So that's one of the reasons too, we're happy to be here is there's no, no more night flying except scheduled night flying. So yeah. that helps. <laughs> So it sounds like a lot of scheduling and flexibility. Yeah, scheduling flexibility and like remembering to do cute things. Yeah, I was going to say intentionality. Yeah, so like one of the things we did while we were apart was we'd send each other like, you know, the Hallmark corny love cards, like mm -hmm. thinking of you and stuff. They always have puns on them. Sometimes they're really cringe. Yeah, so we would send those to each other all the time because we both like getting mail. Who doesn't like getting mail? So then we'd start doing that when we were living together too. We would just like leave them on the pillow or like if we're going away on an exercise, I'd leave like a couple scattered around the house kind of thing. Just as a reminder, right? It's, um, it's a nice way and it's better. I find it's better in some ways than just like a text because the text you can, you get used to texting back and forth and like, I don't feel like you get the same kind of connection. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if you're doing that really cute thing or like you buy their favorite dessert, Paul would usually buy me flowers and have them like set up before he'd leave on a course so that I'd have like something nice in the kitchen to look at while he was gone. Like it was really, you have to be cute and like a little disgusting about it <laughs> to, be, to really keep it like happy. Yeah. What's been the hardest part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? Um, not being able to plan <laughs> ever. Like 
trying to plan family vacations or getting to see our families at all. Like we've both been away from our families for 12 years and not lived remotely close to them. So trying to plan times when we can go see family, we can take that time together as well is always frustrating because there are always constraints, right? It could be nice for you to go and see, you know, your brother's birthday, but that's not going to line up with Christmas leave or summer block leave or someone's on a course or whatever. So there's, there's no ability to do a kind of long-term planning. The other thing now that we have Owen too, is thinking of schooling and like those long-term plans that people that don't have to move as often, you get to plan that. You get to decide like, I really want my kid to go to this school or, you know, I really want them to be in like this sport or this club. And you can have that reliability of, well, we're going to live here for the next 15 years. So like, we know that they're going to be in this school district, yada, yada, yada. For us, we like, we aren't even sure if we're going to be in this province when no one starts school. And if we are, we don't know how many grades he's going to do. Right. So it's, it's such a crapshoot <laughs> trying to find and plan for your future that that's probably the, the most frustrating part because every time you get settled too, like you'll get settled and comfortable and you'll be like, okay, maybe we could stay here. And then something will come up and you'll get posted or even if you don't get posted, something will change that will affect those plans. So there's no sense of long-term stability in the sense of plans. I mean, obviously there's long-term stability in Paul's career and some things remain constant. Any kind of like family planning and stuff is just a disaster. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What has been the best part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? That's kind of a hard one. I think on an individual level, like between Paul and I, I love seeing him when he's like really thrilled about his job. So there's a couple of times, like his first couple of rescues, especially the first rescue that he got where someone, it wasn't a search, it was actually a rescue. So they, he got someone, got them to medical aid and they survived. That was like such a rush, I think, for him and seeing him like so happy and so proud of that was like really awesome. And then the other thing is as much as we complain about postings, like having a chance to live in different places around the country has been awesome. Like we loved Nova Scotia. Neither of us are from there. I'm from Alberta. Paul's from BC. And we absolutely loved living in Nova Scotia. And I never would have moved there. Like what would make me move there, right? <laughs> There's nothing else that really kind of pushes those boundaries and gives you those different kinds of experiences like being told you have to go live there for three years or more right <laughs> so that i think that part's been the best those yeah. two things yeah what has been your coolest experience as a spouse to someone in the rcaf one of our friends is going to be a little bitter about this not gonna lie <laughs> when paul was up in goose bay flying on the griffin it's quite a small squadron and everything and they knew that i was also military and also air crew so when i came up to visit the christmas after we got engaged his CO approved me to go fly with them. So I got to go in the back of the Griffin and we went up to the Mealy Mountains, which is just outside of um, Goose Bay and like landed on a mountain oh, and wow. went and got up. So we've got like a selfie of us together on a mountain. <laughs> like that was pretty cool. And none of the other spouses could do it because they weren't military. <laughs> That's why one of our friends is going to be really salty. But because um, <laughs> for the longest time, we didn't tell her it happened. <laughs> but yeah, I think being able to see him like work like that is super cool. And the helicopter pilots get to do the mountain flying course in Penticton, which is like super cool. They just get to go learn how to like land on teeny tiny pieces of mountain and do weird helicopter things. But so I got to fly with him to there and they actually let me like sit in the front seat and fly a helicopter with him in the back and you're just, just there to watch and whatever. It was a lot of fun. That's really cool. Yeah. And we got to go scare a mountain goat. Like it was, <laughs> it was great. It was a lot of fun. 
every time that course comes up in interviews, everyone talks about how incredible it is. Oh, that's like the best flying you'll do in your life. Yeah, it's unreal. And like they have these little helicopters. They remind me of like little sports cars because they're just like, you know, the cockpit bubble, basically. And like the rotor blades in the tail. And then you just go. They were doing like canyon runs and stuff like it's definitely super cool. And the that company is like so professional and so nice and like yeah everyone that i've talked to they just sort of like rant about that course because they're like everything's so smooth everything's so well planned we get to do such cool flying like yeah it was cool it was a good chance cool so for a final question i want you to think about a young pilot or a young air crew member what piece of advice would you give them to help them have a successful family life i think you really need to be purposeful about your work-life balance that's something that is really easy to ignore, especially when you're young and either single or kind of newly married. When you're in that young family stage where maybe you don't have kids yet, maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you aren't thinking about it, but you're newly married because you're you're new and gung-ho and usually you're doing an upgrade process or, or working, you know, towards your goals. It's really easy to get sucked in to work is life, mm -hmm. which it isn't <laughs> like not to be harsh, but when you retire, the RCAF is going to continue on without you, right? Yeah, like it's 100%. not, it's not a, you are not the make and break piece of the entire organization. So you need to take time for family that you're never going to get back. Those are things you really need to focus on. And especially with kids too, like when you start to have kids, take the time off. Like a lot of people I know didn't take parental leave, even though they're entitled to it and they can, because they wanted to continue on with their flying, but the planes are going to be there when you get back. Yeah, right? I agree. Like, it's totally okay to love your job and to be passionate about it and to, you know, volunteer for things and volunteer for trips. But you have to check in with your partner and make sure that they're not missing you, right? Like, they're going to miss you a little bit. But if they feel like they're missing huge chunks of your life, take some time. Take some time to focus on that. And also remember that they're going to be the ones that are sticking around with you and kids or like your early years of marriage. Like, you're not going to get those back. So make the most of them. And you can still enjoy your job. And then you have like a much better, ideally healthier <laughs> relationship when you come out of it at the end. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day. I know you're super busy with Owen and everything else in life and getting settled in this new place. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Our final guest today is my very good friend, Lindsay Olson. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thanks for having me, Brian. So Lindsay, can you start by quickly telling us about yourself? So I grew up in a small town called Port Alberni on Vancouver Island, BC. I moved to Victoria, BC, which is about two and a half hours from my hometown, just after graduation. And I attended Camosun College. And I was one of those people that didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I took a one-year certificate program and office administration and was hired by the BC government shortly after. I worked for the BC government for 10 years and held five different positions. And during my time with government, I discovered that I have a knack for writing. And so that sort of propelled my career forward to where I am today as the Director of Communications for Southern Health Santé Sid, which is the Southern Health Authority in here in Manitoba. 
I was a dancer growing up. I have three children. And of course, I'm married to Nils, who is a maritime helicopter pilot by trade and, and currently an instructor here at 3CFFTS in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Awesome. So how did you and Nils meet each other? We met through Plenty of Fish, which is an online dating platform, or it was a very popular online dating platform back when we met 12 years ago. I have no idea if it still exists, but... <laughs> it's, it, it's definitely one of the originals. Yeah, it was very common back then. Yeah. Once you guys started talking on Plenty of Fish and you met him, what was your initial thought when it came to dating someone in the RCAF? So that actually prompts a bit of a funny story. So prior to meeting Nils through Plenty of Fish, I had been on a date with a Navy guy who explained in great detail what deployments look like and all okay. the comings and goings. And I thought to myself, nope, I have no interest in that. Why would I want to be with someone who's gone most of the time? So I just wanted no part of that. And fast forward to meeting Nils. He was actually very strategic about not mentioning that he worked in the military. <laughs> he, uh, he vaguely mentioned that he worked in aviation and eventually disclosed that he was a pilot. And uh, it was actually the day that we were supposed to meet that he had mentioned that he was on a course and that triggered something. I realized that the course that he was on was the same course that this Navy guy had been on. And I just thought, oh my God, he works in the military. And so I confronted him by text. And you know, when somebody's, you know, texting, there's those three dots yeah. and then pause and then three dots. And so that went on for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually just said yes. And I had this like out of body experience where I thought, okay, I have 20 minutes before I need to catch a bus to meet this guy. And I really like him. I can tell that we have chemistry. I'm either going to get on that bus and meet him and accept whatever comes next, knowing that he has the potential to change the course of my life forever, or I run for the hills, right? Yeah. So it came down to five minutes and I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to run for this bus. If I catch the bus, I'm going to accept whatever comes next. If I miss the bus, then we were never meant to meet. So... Obviously, I caught that bus and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I'm like actually crying from, from this story. <laughs> I mean, it did change the course of my life, right? Yeah. It's just like you just know yeah. that uh, having enough background on what military life was like just from hearing from other people that I had been on dates with. I just knew that whatever plans you have in life are, they will change. Yeah, for sure. If you're in a relationship with someone who's in the military. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like, as much as we live in a world now where more and more, rightly so, both people's careers are important, or we try to strive for equal importance. The truth is, if one person's in the military, everyone else in the family's life revolves around the demands of that job. It's just the way it has to be. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you work as director of communications for Manitoba Southern Health, and you and Nils have three kids. How have you found balancing employment, parenthood, and being married to an RCAF pilot? It can be very challenging. Some days are fairly routine, and other days require extensive planning and coordination. 
when Nils is on a cross country, we call those survival days. Those are the days when we let the laundry pile up and the house get dirty and you just prioritize what needs to happen. And what needs to happen is getting kids to school and daycare and work and then dinner extracurricular. And we are not above asking for help. We learned very early on that we are fortunate to have a robust family military network here. I mean, I can't even count on, I don't have enough hands to count how many times you and Melissa alone have helped our family in, in times of need. And that's just one of many families that steps up to the plate to help us. Yeah, we're so fortunate here in Portage La Prairie at the school because people have the extra bandwidth to help each other. And I found that this place has been really great for almost recuperating from the crazy life of operational flying. And we can all help each other out a little more. And it's been really nice. I couldn't agree more, Brian. It's been an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. So going back to when you met, very shortly after you met, Nils left for his operational training unit. To follow it up, he was quickly sent away on a nine and a half month sale. What was that like for you? It was a big eye opener. You don't realize how long nine and a half months is until you're in the thick of it. And during that time, I had a lot of time to reflect on what our life might look like moving forward. So we did not have kids at that time. And I just kept thinking to myself, this is only the beginning. This is going to get more challenging as time goes on. What will this look like with kids? There was a lot of reflection that happened during that time. So it was tough, but I think I, I always knew that it could get tougher. And so I kind of was thankful for the position that I was in and that I did not have kids and, and that I was able to carry on with, with my job, no problem while he was away. But it must've been really difficult because how long had you been together before he went to the uh, East Coast to get trained on the Sea King? We had only been together for two months yeah. before he left. And leading up to his departure for Sea King training, he, he just kept mentioning that he was going to go on a training course and it would be a couple of weeks. And then it was a couple months. And then, um, you know, true story is that it was seven months, but he just didn't want to lose me. And he wanted to you know, ease me into the idea that he would be coming and going frequently, which yeah. is exactly what happened. And then he came back. And how long was it before he left on that sale? Two weeks. Two weeks. So you were together again for two weeks and then gone for nine and a half months. He had a few deployments prior to that big oh, one. Okay. So yeah, he had like a two month and a four month and he was always home for a couple of weeks in between. Yeah. And then of course that, that long sale. And after he came back, we got married. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's a lot of time apart. How did you two keep things going during those times? Communication was key. We had previously established really strong communication skills prior to his leaving and his time in Halifax training really solidified that the importance of connecting every day in whatever means were available to us. So that texting, FaceTime, emails. We even wrote letters, postcards. Oh my gosh, I yeah. think I got a postcard. I have like a box full of letters and postcards from that time. <laughs> I should take that out sometime. Yeah, you should. Yeah. 
we made a point of having some form of connection every day, even if it was just, you know, hi, thinking of you, I'll talk to you soon. So those deployments kept coming and Nils sailed or deployed on ships a total of five times while you've been together. Can you tell us about some of those experiences? When I look back on that, the time of deployments, there's one deployment in particular that sticks out to me as being especially hard. And that was the last deployment he was on before we got posted to Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. He, it was a five month sail. Our first child was not even one. Mm -hmm. And I was pregnant with our second child. So I was in the process of returning to work following mat leave and our daughter was going to daycare for the first time ever. So there was a lot of change happening and we quickly discovered or I quickly discovered that when your child goes to daycare for the first time ever, they catch every virus mm. known to man. Mm -hmm. So our daughter was just constantly sick and nothing could have prepared me for that experience. I ended up burning all of my vacation days within the first two months. So I had to have a really awkward conversation with my boss about my situation being, you know, essentially a single parent at the time and obviously not being able to send my, our daughter to daycare. So I found that really challenging and just a huge eye opener. I didn't realize that she would be sick so often. She also suffered from reoccurring ear infections, but we didn't know that they were ear infections at the time. So she would get sick and then she would get really sick. And so there would be lots of sleepless nights and me trying to work with her home during the day while she was extremely, extremely ill. And frequently she would, you know, on three occasions, she was admitted to the hospital because of how sick she was. So you can imagine how stressful that would, would have been as a first time parent and trying to maintain a full-time job and just not having that support person you really lean on your other half in those times especially making tough parenting decisions so it was just incredibly challenging and the whole five months is just a blur for me there was one day in particular that sticks out in my mind i ended up contracting gastro oh no yeah so i had one of those nights where i was up all night puking and i remember waking up the next morning to this knock at our front door and you know i hobbled over to the door and i answered the door and it was my neighbor and she just took one look at me and was like oh my gosh you're not okay she's like i'm coming in i'm going to help you you need my help i'm not taking no for an answer and she just packed a bag and she took my daughter for the day and she said you know you need to sleep you go to bed and I remember waking up at 6 p.m. that day, like I wow. slept the entire day and I woke up at 6 p.m. and my neighbor was sitting at our dinner table feeding our daughter dinner. And I just, I just cried. I was just, oh my God, like I didn't realize how much I needed help. And I don't think anything could have prepared me for, you know, what was to come. Right. And, you know, from that day forward, she showed up every day. <laughs> Yeah, she, what a great neighbor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and honestly, my takeaway from that experience was uh, you need a person or 
people. You need a community that can help you when your your spouse is deployed, especially when you have children. Yeah. Nobody can or should have to do it alone. Yeah. If you don't have kids, it can be very lonely. And obviously, if you do have kids, it can be incredibly overwhelming. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And just the sheer, I did not prepare for what was required to keep my head above water during that time. Like it didn't, I don't know why I, I, we did not realize that, you know, simple tasks like grocery shopping and cutting the grass and doing laundry, walking the dog, like there are not enough hours in the day to do all those things and be a parent to a toddler and work a full-time job. So we, we learned very early on that you need help or you need hired help. Yeah. And you need those are survival days, right? You, yeah. you got to do whatever it takes to get to get through them and to give yourself some grace to not expect that you can possibly do all those things. You have you have to get help. And it's not forever. It's just that period of time when you need to accept all the help that comes your way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an important thing to remember, too, you keep listing off having a kid and working and trying to keep everything going by yourself. And you were pregnant. I was, yeah, yeah, I was very pregnant, very pregnant with our second child. So I was like, that's exhausting. It was on so its own. exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Having a sick toddler. And yeah, it, those were, yeah, those were some really tough days. I really like what you said about the importance of help. And I think that just highlights how important it is to have a support network to make sure that before your partner is deployed to make sure that that you have that support network in place you have those people you can count on yeah oh my gosh you need people and you need to know when you've reached your limits mm -hmm. and i learned that very early on you you're not doing yourself or your family any favors if your glass is empty if your basic human needs are not being met then you need to do something about it yeah 100 percent what has been the hardest part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF? It's all the unknowns. There's always a curveball. You don't know what it is or when it's coming. It could be something as simple as a breakdown during a cross country. Your spouse is supposed to be home in two days. You've planned accordingly and then they break down and they're gone for a week. And I mean, this just really it just really solidifies that need for a support network and just knowing when to let some things go. Like maybe you're not going to get to hockey practice this week or, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to make that lasagna. Instead, you're going to get a takeout pizza or whatever. It's just flexibility. Honestly, it you have to be so flexible when you're a military family and when you're married to a pilot in the RCAF. There's just every day has its challenges and there's just so many unknowns. Mm -hmm. And those are just the small things on top of that. You've got like the big things like postings and yes. all kinds of things that can unexpectedly change your life in huge ways. Oh yeah. It can be pretty overwhelming when you think about what's next and just that feeling of just not knowing. I mean, you, you can have all the plans in the world and ultimately that decision about where you're going next isn't isn't always up to you mm -hmm. so that's a lot to accept yeah how do you deal with those unknowns i think our move to portage la prairie is a good example of 
I was very, very nervous about that move. I had never been to Manitoba. It was a lot of unknown for me leaving, you know, the only place I'd ever known, which was Vancouver Island, BC. I grew up there. And so that was a really tough move for me. But I quickly realized that there were many, many perks to moving out of that comfort zone and establishing friendships and relationships with other military families because I we didn't have that in Victoria, as I had previously mentioned. We really didn't have a support network there. But here in Portage La Prairie, it's a really small community. So you you don't really have a choice. Like you make those connections right away. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very positive experience for me. So I think that that has sort of changed my thought pattern on postings and just knowing that, you know, wherever we go next, it's going to be okay. You're going to make a connection. And if you don't, you have all these prior connections and they're going to help you guide your way and you're going to fall back on those experiences and realize that you didn't have to survive that you you embraced it you enjoyed it you made friendships you embraced that community you you put yourself out there you get involved it can be whatever experience you want and you have to make the best of the hand that you're dealt what's been the best part of being a spouse to someone in the RCAF I think it just goes back to those connections. Honestly, we've made lifelong friendships here that I have no doubt that we will continue to stay in touch. And that level of friendship just goes so much beyond the average friendship. It's a family. And even your own family doesn't understand you like another military family does. It's impossible to explain. These are people that are in the same walk of life as you and they know exactly where you're coming from. It's just a bond that it's an honor to be able to make those bonds and, and establish those friendships. So that's a huge positive. Yeah, I think we all have that shared experience of this lifestyle and those life experiences. And even though we come, especially at a school, from like a varied background of fleets and locations, we all understand the life and we can all understand the hardships that each other are going through and, and kind of help each other through them. Yes, it is a lifestyle. what's been your coolest experience as a spouse to someone in the rcaf the coolest experience i've had to date would be mountain flying with Knowles in the okanagan so i actually got to fly that helicopter which was equally thrilling and terrifying (laughs) so i recognize that that was a really unique experience that that i got through Knowles being my helicopter pilot that's really cool it was you and nils and you got a chance to fly the helicopter i did yeah he was sitting in the back and i got to sit in the front and actually fly the helicopter oh with the instructor yeah with the instructor yeah Yeah, of course that's that's so cool though they're very intentional about getting the spouse in the front seat for you know a 20 30 minute flight and i think they're very aware of that the impact that that has because you just Leading to that point, it's just training, training, deployments, and, you know, and then all of a sudden there's this 30 minutes in your life where you get to be there experiencing just a, just a piece of what they go through and, and that, the, the thrill and also the terror mm-hmm. <laughs> flying, flying in the mountains. I mean, I'm sure it's nothing that compares to what our spouses go through and when they're operational, but it really is a life-changing experience. It is really cool when you have a chance to bring your family flying because 
you have a like a concept in your head of like yeah well they're a pilot they fly airplanes they fly helicopters that's what they do but to actually have people come and see it and like feel what it's like and hear the noise and you know uh just be present and be part of it is such a cool experience it really makes it real i think it is an experience there's there's no better way to put it so i want you to think about for example the young pilots that we have here at the school what piece of advice would you give to a young pilot to help them have a successful family life so two things come to mind the first one being that communication and maintaining connection with your family is so critical no matter where you are it's so important to use whatever means are available to you to stay connected with your family even if all you have time for is a quick text or email you know hi i'm thinking of you i'm okay how are you guys you know love you all talk to you soon i mean that's everything it's everything to your family to hear from you even when you're in different time zones and it's hard to connect, it's just nice to know that that other person, you know, your other half is out there thinking of you. Both of you are, are not in ideal situations. You're both going through, you know, tough times or having tough days. So it, it's important on both parts to maintain that connection in whatever way possible. And especially for the kids, we, we are very intentional when Nils is away, even if it's just overnight, to do a quick FaceTime with the kids and, and say goodnight to them so that they know that wherever he is in the world, he will always take time to connect with them. The second thing is to help your family foster a connection with another family, whether that be military or just another family in the community you need to have a support network and it's so critical to help your family foster that connection and just to know that they have that support system because something always comes up you will always need to fall back on that support system and just knowing that you have that one other person or family that can help you it's a live or die situation honestly you you can't survive without it it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a robust family military network to raise a military family. Yeah, I agree with that completely. <laughs> yeah. So that's the, the those are the two pieces of advice I have. Awesome. Well, Lindsay, that does it for this interview. I just want to thank you so much. I know you're extremely busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and answer a few questions. So happy to be here, Brian. Thank Thanks. you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's going to wrap up our episode on Military Family Appreciation Day. I hope you all enjoyed getting a bit of the spouse perspective. For our next episode, we sat down with Greg Gerlink to talk about his time in Afghanistan on the CH-146 Griffin. Listeners will remember Greg from our Christmas episode from last year. He's got some very exciting stories. You don't want to miss it. Do you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show? Or would you or someone you know make a great guest? Reach out to us at the pilot project podcast at gmail.com or on all social media at, at pod pilot project. As always, we want to wrap things up by thanking you for listening and for sharing the show with your friends and by asking for your help with the big three that's like, and follow us on social media, share with your friends and follow and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya. Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.